At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through this three-week series, we are turning to the biblical book of Isaiah to discover how God's holiness, forgiveness, and love compel us to share Him with others. We'll come face-to-face with whatever is keeping us from answering God's call, as Isaiah did. Send me. Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we do the very things that we do? Now, I'm not speaking just about why individually you do the things you do. You get up in the morning, you eat whatever cereal it is you eat, you work the job that you eat. I'm, I'm asking a little bit more broadly, why does the church, why do we corporately do the things that we do? And I think we could spend some time in just unpacking and answering those questions one after one, like why do we sing, why do we, why do we pray, why do we as a church gather, uh, but, but in one specific area, I want to press this question. George Mallory was asked in 1923 by an American journalist what his motivation for climbing and seeking to summit the world's tallest mountain, Mount Everest, was. Why was he climbing and seeking to climb Mount Everest? Mallory's answer was very simple, because it's there. And in regard to that, to a task that I believe is is equally daunting, equally challenging, and equally inspiring, maybe even more so, it is more so, I I have to ask us this morning, why does the church, why do we do world missions? Why, Why do we care about sending People to the, to the ends of the earth, to the faraway places, to third world countries, to places where they don't have the luxuries and the comforts that we do? Or why do we send people to places with the luxuries and comforts that we do to share with them the good news of Jesus? What is it about world missions that keeps us engaged? And more particularly, why should the church, Woodside, let's just take out, I know there's many other good, faithful churches around us, but why do we at Woodside Bible Church, why do we care, why do we invest in, why are we engaged, why do we send, why do we give ourselves to the task of global evangelization, discipleship, training, and supporting the work of the gospel in the entire world? Why do we care? Is our answer the same as George Mallory's? Because it's there? I think that's an okay answer, but I'm not satisfied with that. I don't believe that just because it's there is big enough. It's not enough motivation to get us out of bed in the morning, to to call us to pack up our belongings, even to sell them and to go ourselves, to relocate our families overseas. It's not enough motivation just because it's there to to prayerfully and willingly, open-handedly send our children who are called by God to go overseas with their lives. It's not enough motivation for us to, to give our finances away to support and encourage people to lay down their lives. Because it's there is not enough motivation for us to die even for the sake of Jesus' name in all the world. Yes, it's there. But why? Why are we even saying over the next three, four weeks, we want, we're praying that the Lord releases and gives among us a quarter of a million dollars to expand our vision on global missions? Why is that there? Well, over the next three weeks, I want to cast a vision for why, but I want to take it from more than just being because the world is there to see the global heart of God for his mission. 
I want us to see why we should be engaged in the work of evangelism and more broadly global missions. And my prayer is that through this series, through these next three weeks of teaching in Isaiah chapter 6, that Woodside as a whole, but specifically our campus, would be engaged in praying for, giving towards, supporting, sending, and even going out ourselves in global missions like never before. I'm praying that the Lord will mobilize us like never, ever before. That, that the way one puts it, that our seating capacity would be exceeded by our sending capacity. What will propel us forward to those ends? Well, we need the right fuel. It all comes down to motivation, the fuel to carry out the motivation and the mission, this ambition to see the gospel taken to the ends of the world. We need the right fuel. And so over the next three weeks, I'm going to take us to Isaiah 6 and, and show in this one setting what I believe are three profound motivating realities. They're the deepest motivations to send us into global missions. We need to see who God is. We need to see what God has done. And we need to hear and respond to what God calls or commands all three of these elements are found in this single encounter with the living God that the prophet Isaiah has that make up his calling in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6. My prayer is that from these three weeks, we would have the same posture towards God's call on our lives and towards God's call on our church that Isaiah did. What was Isaiah's response? Here I am. Send me. I pray that's true and that that would happen here among us. So where will we start? Well, we're going to start with this first motivation, the greatest motivation for our engagement in global missions, and that is found in the very reality of who God is. You're going to hear Isaiah 6, the passage that Heather read just a few minutes ago. You're going to hear that read over and over again over the next three Sundays. In fact, I would encourage you to memorize it. It's profound. It's deep. But we're going to start with the first motivation, and that is who God is. That's what motivates us, or to say it this way, God's glory is what compels us to go. If we will see with the eyes of our hearts and understand who God is, I believe there will be a radical shift in our engagement in global missions. And I would encourage you to start by thinking about what is your engagement level in the purposes of global missions? What are you doing in your life? How are you engaged in your home, in your prayers, in, in what you do and how you, how you think about global missions, what involvement in, or engagement do you already have there? Do you have any at all? If we don't, well, then we want to take the next step in seeing the glory of God, seeing God's glory, because that will compel us to go. If we do have some engagement, perhaps seeing the glory of God will move us all the further to be a part of what he's doing. So let's, let's look and see what Isaiah saw here. He saw the glory of God, and that's my hope this morning, that we would see his glory and his greatness. I have to admit, in preaching this passage, I love Isaiah 6, but I love it in the way I love a massive mountain. It's so big, like even, even me trying to come up with language to speak about God's glory here in Isaiah 6, I feel like a little baby who doesn't know the first word. It's a blah, blah. You know, I, just, I, I don't know how to talk about God well enough, sufficiently enough to communicate the depth of who he is here to you. So you pray for me in that. <laughs> There's at the book, end of the book, uh, uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, third book. 
Reepicheep, the little mouse, he gets on a little boat and he, and he paddles to the end of the world. And the word holy here in this passage, John Piper has said it this way, that word holy there, it's the little boat that carries our English language to the end of the world of God's glory. Like this is, it's just this little boat that gets us to the profound depths of who he is. Let's see the glory of God. Isaiah's prophecy here in chapter 6 begins with him setting the stage for us. The vision that he has takes place in the same year that King Uzziah died. Notice that Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Now this is important where Isaiah is setting the stage for us because Uzziah was the longest sitting king on the throne of Judah. He had ruled for 52 years over Judah, and more or less, they had been good years. Uzziah, on the whole, was considered a good and faithful king. He didn't do well at the end, and he didn't finish well, but, but if you look at the broad scope of his life in those 52 years in his reign, good things. Judah was prosperous, they were safe, and there was security. And yet, with his death, however, a lot of uncertainty and anxiety and even fear was rising up in the nation. Who's next? Is he going to lead well? Are we going to be secure? Is everything going to dissipate and fall away? Even Isaiah sensed this, this anxiety and this insecurity. Yet the Lord, in his grace, gives Isaiah this vision right at, the mo- right at this very moment. When, when the king had died, God shows up. It's a counterbalance to Isaiah's anxiety It's as if God is saying, Isaiah, don't worry about who the human king is on his throne. I I want you to see me. And so that's what happens. The Lord shows up. I want you to see what Isaiah saw. Let's be stunned and let's be captivated by this vision. The year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Note here what Isaiah saw. He says, I saw the Lord. I saw God Almighty. And and if you're familiar with the scriptures, you wrestle with that because you know the scriptures say no one can see God and live. The the glory of God is so immense that that we, we cannot see him. We know from scripture, even stated in our doctrinal confessions, the reality of who God is. This is from Westminster. There is but one living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection. A most pure spirit, invisible, without body or parts. How how do you comprehend one who is infinite in being and perfection? How, How do you get a view on one who is pure spirit, invisible, without body or parts? Well, the only answer is that the Lord condescended to Isaiah. He 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 came and appeared in physical manifestation. There's one of the foremost scholars on Isaiah puts it, God himself, God clothes, clothes himself sometimes with visibility for the good of his people, showing now this side and now that side of his character. For Isaiah, the Lord became visible in exalted kingliness with a throne, robes, and attendants, all speaking of sovereign majesty and dominion. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord Almighty. 
Note his position. Note the Lord's position, sitting on a throne. This is the sovereign, reigning Lord, God Almighty, seated, securely secure on his throne, ruling and reigning above all things. Friends, we should have no doubt who rules all things. Isaiah's fear about the kingship and the state of the nation, it should all be dissolved away immediately with that vision. There is God Almighty on his throne, seated, secure. The kingdoms of this world shift and they ebb and flow. They change. Uzziah may have died, but the Lord is secure. He is still and always and will forever be ruling and reigning over all things from his eternal and glorious position as King of kings and Lord of lords. Our hope should never be set on a, on a person who reigns in this country for four years or eight years or a sovereign who reigns for 48 years. They are all footnotes to the glory of the eternal king who rules and reigns over all things. Isaiah says, I saw him sitting upon this throne. Nothing moves him. Nothing shakes him. He's secure in his glory and in his kingship. Second notice, his prominence. He is high and lifted up. This is to state his status. No one has the regal status and the prominence of this king. Whether we regard him in this manner or not, God is exalted above all things. He will and must have first place above everything. There is nothing that God subordinates himself to. He sits and rules and reigns as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the highest in all things above all. He is elevated above all earthly rivals, kings, thrones. He has ultimate dominion. And he's so high and lifted up. His glory is so great that Isaiah says, just to even speak about his essence of of what I see of him, he says the train or the hem of his robe, it filled the entirety of the temple. Like that temple is huge and and even the, the smallest little dangling portion of God's garments cover it all. Consume it all, fill it all. His glory is so great that all Isaiah can note is God's immensity, his magnificence. The Lord sits above the temple on his throne. And in his sovereign greatness, there he reigns and rules. And just a small edge of his garments fill up the entire temple place. That is to say that God is supreme in all that he is. Ruling over all that he has made. King of kings, Lord of lords, no rivals. No one can even stand close to his greatness and glory. That's who Isaiah sees. In the the year of the shakeup, of all shakeups for Judah, there's one who is not shaken at all. How much do we need that vision today? Because we feel shaken all the time. I mean, somebody says a word in Washington. And we're all freaking out. But God's not. He rules and reigns. Sovereign dominion and glory. Isaiah shifts to speak about the attendants around the throne in verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Uh, The word seraphim there is literally the idea of the burning ones. Other scriptures we find and we see, we wonder how many are there. Multitude upon multitude. Millions upon millions, angelic beings around and above, over, beside the throne. They're attending to the king, serving him. These burning ones, 
We have no number, but multitude upon multitude, they are, as Ray Ortland puts it, the living flames of pure, nuclear-powered praise. Each has six wings, Isaiah describes them. Two, he covered his face. Two, he covered his feet. Or two, he flew. Now, this is a, this is a odd way of thinking about it. We get the two why he flew. Two wings for why they fly, but what about the two wings to cover themselves, their faces, two to cover their faces, two to cover their feet, or their, their bodies, their beings? Why is that there? They're not covering themselves from shame or from guilt. These angels are, are sinless beings. They're covering themselves from the pure glory of seeing God. Matthew Henry, the commentator, says, in the presence of God, they cover themselves because they cannot bear the dazzling luster of divine glory. If they as angels approach the very throne of God with reverence and humility, that they, they cover themselves as they see the glory of God, how much more so should we, in reverence and awe, humble ourselves before him? Isaiah seems to be circling, surrounding the throne, covering themselves, and then he hears what they have to proclaim as they approach the very throne of God with grace or with reverence. With worship, they shout back and forth. There's an antiphical call back from one side to another, declaring the glory of God. They proclaim, verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. These, these seraphim proclaim God's supreme holiness as his glory and the results that his glory will have in the entire scope of the globe. When they, when they ascribe to God holiness, they are declaring emphatically the nature of who God is. I'll put it this way. In the Hebrew language, when you repeat a word, you're doing it for emphasis. We would bold uh, print our words if we were emphasizing them or italicize them if they were in print. In this oral language, to, repeat, to emphasize it, you're repeating it. And so when you say it twice, you're saying this has prominent importance. Note this. When you say it three times, you're declaring emphasis to the highest degree. Again, Ray Orland says that holy, holy is not just repetition. Holy, holy, holy is not just repetition. It's emphasis. It isn't one plus one plus one. It is perfection times perfection times perfection. These angelic beings are saying God is completely, totally, absolutely the holiest of all holies. What is this holiness? The word holy means to be set apart, to be distinct or separate. It's a sense of moral purity and excellence, as well as one-of-a-kind uniqueness. That is to say that God's holiness is his godness. There is no one like him in any way. He is transcendent, pure, perfect, radiant, one-of-a-kind, completely rare, his holiness is his glory. If you take away God's holiness, you take away God from being God. So there these angelic beings of fire are around the throne, calling back and forth to one another. Here's God, holy, holy, holy. That is his name. The Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabbat, the Lord of armies. They see the radiant beauty and majesty of the glory of God in his holiness. And all they can ascribe is his perfection upon perfection upon perfection that there is no one like him in all the cosmos. 
He alone is worthy of glory. That is to say, God is the highest, the best, the most superior, exalted, excellent, glorious one above everything else. He commands the universe as the transcendent, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present at once, all-glorious Lord. They proclaim God's glory and his holiness, and they describe then what his glory will do. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when we look at the world today, we don't see that. Do we? Do we see the whole world full of his glory? If anything, I think we see the world under an all-out assault by humanity to fill it with our puny and pathetic ideas of glory. We're looking to just prop ourselves up and magnify our stupid little ideas of glory. So what does this mean here when the angels proclaim the whole earth is full of his glory? Well, Psalm 72, 19 gives us a glimpse of this phrase and what it means. The psalmist says, blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The psalm uses the same language and points us forward. It makes it a future tense, which is exactly what the text of Isaiah here is doing. That is to say, the whole earth will be full of his glory. Because God is holy, because there is no one like him, because he stands above, exalted over all things, the day is coming when the whole earth Every part of it, every corner and crevice, every tongue, tribe, people, and nation will be filled with, see, embrace, and worship him for his glory. And this is the great end and the goal by which God created the world. It is to display and to show off his gloriousness, his holiness. The goal for which God made all things is to show off his magnificent holiness. In the classic Old Testament commentary by Franz Delich, he says, the design of all the work of God is that his holiness should become universally manifest or that his glory should become the fullness of the whole earth. Jonathan Edwards wrote, and he said, the great end of God's works, which is so variously expressed in Scripture, is indeed but one. And this one end is most properly and comprehensively called the glory of God. The angels proclaim is the holiness and the uniqueness and the transcendent majesty of the glory of God and proclaim the whole earth is going to be filled with his glory. Every eye will see. Now, as Isaiah sees the Lord and he sees the seraphim and he hears the exalted call of worship, he has a terrifying experience. Verse 4 The foundations of the thresholds shook. At the voice of him who called. As these angels called back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The the common and the profane things of this earth shake at his radiant glory. The house was filled with smoke. The sight and the sound and the declaration of the majestic glory and holiness of God brings everything to tremble. There Isaiah realizes he stands in the very presence of God. I just want to pause here and have you consider God yourself. Do we tremble at the sight and the sound of his radiant glory and majesty? I mean, how infrequently do we take in views of his comprehensive 
an unmatched holiness. John Owen put it this way. He says, one of the greatest privileges the believer has in this world and for all eternity is to behold the glory of Christ. And I wonder how often we squander or ignore or even miss this great privilege. How often and how deeply do we contemplate and meditate on the holiness and the greatness of God? One of the reasons I'm so convinced that we are more divided, more angry, more exhausted today than any other day, it seems, is because we've neglected so much to behold the beauty and the glory and the holiness of God. We give such little time in our lives to take in and to comprehend his greatness and splendor. We make God's glory the footnote of our lives. And so we exhaust ourselves looking at and evaluating and identifying our greatness or pursuing or perceiving the greatness of someone other than us. And frankly, we're not that great at all. I don't mean to offend you, it's just truth. We give such little time, very much no thought at all, How much effort do we put forward to behold the holiness and the greatness of God? The first thing, and I think the prime thing that Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer is to say, Father, hallowed be your name. Glorified be your name. May your name be magnified and exalted above all else, and we, we neglect that in our daily lives. We, we neglect seeing the glory of God in the very place that he's displayed his glory more fully and clearly for us in all the universe. That is in Jesus Christ. As Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 4, in, this case, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers. Satan puts a veil over the eyes of unbelievers to keep them to see, from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Or in verse 6, he said, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. God has revealed and displayed his glory to us. His holiness is seen purely in Jesus Christ. And do we meditate on his glory? Do we fix our eyes on Jesus, the Holy One? Friends, we must stand stunned at the magnitude of God's infinite glory, Jesus' infinite glory, being fully God and taking on humanity fully and completely. We, We need to become fixated on his perfect and wise life in every way. He lived without sin or fault or blemish because he is holy. We must be sobered by Jesus' utter condescension to come and to die a sinner's death on the cross for our sins. Uh, we should be awed by his glorious power to defeat death through death and then take up a resurrection on the third day. Are we thankful for Christ's exalted state ascending to the Father where he, Jesus, Christ, rules and reigns over all things and sits at the right hand of the Father on high? Do we desire his imminent return where he will put all things to rights and make all things new and stand gloriously and victoriously as king of kings and lord over all lords? Friends, never tire of getting your eyes on the glory of God in Jesus Christ and his holiness. 
We have to lay down bringing, binging on the drivel of this world and begin to binge on the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There is no gluttony in enjoying God forever. You need to repent of drinking in the unholy blasphemy and repugnant rebellion of this world against God in our entertainment and our media and our social media. And we need to begin more and more taking in the pure milk of the word of God, which reveals to us the glory of God. Friends, your heart will never be stirred with a passion for the glory of God while your mind drinks in large gulps of sensuality and debauchery and violence and division and lies and idolatry and the filth of this world, which we pump into our hearts and minds 24-7 through our streaming platforms, our social media, the news media, and all the like. It's killing our capacity to perceive the far greater glory of God. And so we are like the people that C.S. Lewis describes who enjoy rolling around in the slum and the mud and the garbage of this world with zero comprehension of what is meant by a vacation at the beach. If we think we can carry out a movement of missions without the glory of God, we're stupidly mistaken. And it all starts here. Isaiah doesn't get to go, hey God, I'm ready to go. He sees the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And if you and I will get clear views of the glory of God, if we actually become worshipers of the living Holy Lord, then what will happen? We'll show the world the glory of God. Think about it this way. We are reflectors. If something overwhelms us, we talk about it. Last Sunday, I mentioned that Caravaggio painting I saw in Rome because it stunned me. And I can't stop talking about it because it blew me away. What are you talking about lately? Isn't that worship, what worship is? It's the elevation and the exaltation of objects worthy of praise. If God is the greatest and highest of all beings, if he is the best of all beings, and we've encountered his holiness, how can we not from that be part of proclaiming his greatness? As Isaiah heard it, holy, 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 as he saw it, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, he heard proclaimed, the whole earth will be full of his glory. And that's the mission for us to join in, to see the world filled with the glory of a holy God. Now this is what God promises will happen. In Habakkuk 2.14, God says, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How, ex how comprehensively does the waters cover the sea in every part? So the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. That will come to pass. Or Malachi 1.11, from the rising of the sun, so the place it comes up in the east, to the setting place in the west, my name, God says, will be great among all the nations. And in every place, from east to west, the totality of the globe. In every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. How does that happen? Through God's people declaring and displaying his glory in the face of Jesus Christ everywhere. So First Chronicles says, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. 
Or as Jesus put it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people put a lamp, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify, give glory to your Father in heaven. We have got to get a view of the glory of God. And when we see who God is, when we see him in his holiness, in his ruling, reigning splendor and greatness, how can we not but help be transformed by that? To be consumed by his grace so we will become missionaries ourselves, displaying and declaring his glory in all the world. I don't have a point of application to send you with this morning and say, hey, let's go make a big impact in the world. The only thing I want you to do today is to see and to drink in the glory of God. To get your eyes more and more and more on God's greatness and his profound splendor and his holiness. Because that is the ultimate fuel and motivation for all of world missions. The greater we see the glory of God, the more driven we will be to take his grace and his greatness to all the nations. So to be able to say, as Isaiah says, here I am, send me, means we have to be worshipers. So friends, do you see God's glory? Have you, as the scripture said, tasted and seen that he is good? Do you know his holiness? Do you know his love? It's, it's time for us to begin weaning our hearts off the things of this world and put our hearts and minds on true majesty. And then the world will change because we have been changed. That's where we must start. The motivation for global missions is all in seeing the glory of God. Do you see him? Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.